0: again. It's Nurse Mo and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm so excited you're here and we're studying together today. I am really jazzed about this topic because honestly, it's something that I've been thinking about for a really long time. Before we dive into it, let's take a quick minute for our listener shout out. And this one goes to Chris, who wrote me an email and says, Hey, Nurse Mo, I wanted to start off by telling you that your show is an exceptional resource for nursing students. I'm finishing up my first year and your podcasts have helped me immensely. I haven't come across any drug or disease process I wasn't familiar with, and your show played a huge role along in conjunction with my work experience. Nursing school has been a breeze, and I am excelling with a 4.0. I am so grateful, and what you were doing deserves recognition. So thank you, Chris, for taking the time to send me that very thoughtful email. Actually, Chris's email was much longer. Um, There was a lot more to say, but I wanted to keep it short and sweet for the listener shout-out. So if you want to get a listener shout-out, send me an email or... Simply rate and review the podcast. I read every single one and they always, always make my day. So in this episode, we're tackling something that I've been really thinking about for a long time. So when I was a student, I remember hearing medical terms, medical terminology all the time that would make me think, hmm, I should probably know what that means, but I'm too embarrassed to ask or... This isn't the right time to ask or something like that. Now you would think that that feeling would go away after more than 10 years working as a nurse at the bedside, but it doesn't. There is always going to be something that you don't know. And while it's perfectly normal to feel hesitant when it comes to, you know, broadcasting your lack of knowledge, I want you to know that it is always okay to ask questions. If you are ever in doubt about an assessment finding, a medication, or how to give a medication, a procedure, anything going on with your patient, it is up to you to set your pride aside and ask those questions. Of course, if it's something not urgent, you can always look these things up later. So what I would do is I would keep a little notebook and jot things down throughout my clinical shift. And then as a new nurse, I would jot things down as I went. And that was a really key way for me to grow my clinical knowledge. So I would either jot down my question and look it up later or jot down the little nugget that I learned, because guess what? I would ask questions. Okay. So now that we've got that out of the way, And you know that it's always okay to ask if you definitely need to know the information now. And then if it's not urgent and you want to look it up later, make yourself a note to do that. You will learn so, so much. So we're going to dive into some common medical terminology that you're going to hear or maybe you have heard. And these are the things that students and often even experienced nurses are a little bit unsure about. So you ready for this? Okay, let's do this. All right, this first section is called this versus that. And these are things that are just kind of easy to mix up. So we'll start with a common one that you'll come across in nursing school, which is objective versus subjective. So, an easy way to remember this is that objective means it is something that can be observed, objective, observed, while subjective means something the subject experiences. This is exactly what we're talking about when we refer to signs and symptoms. Okay, so signs and symptoms are not interchangeable. A sign is one thing, a symptom is something else. So objective data are the signs. These are the things that you observe. You observe the signs of disease. And subjective data are the symptoms. It's what the subject or the patient experiences. So when someone says signs and symptoms, you'll know this means both information obtained from objective observation, from observing and assessing the patient, and information obtained by asking the patient about their experience, and that would be the subjective and the symptom. Okay, making sense? Now you know objective versus subjective, and when we say signs and symptoms, what we really mean. Okay, this one is a little bit, woo, this one's tough, okay? So I definitely want you, if you're multitasking, if you're doing other things, I want you to circle back to me, give me your full attention. This one is sensitivity versus specificity. Okay, so these are both going to be measures of the accuracy of a test. How accurate a test is. Sensitivity is the test's ability to correctly determine a positive result in people who have the disease. You may also hear this referred to as the true positive rate. A highly sensitive test will therefore have very few false negative results. In other words, if the test comes back negative, You can believe it's negative. There's not a good chance it will be a false negative. I'm going to say this again because I know this part, when you're talking about sensitivity and specificity, it can be a bit of a brain puzzle. So I'm going to repeat that. Sensitivity is the test's ability to correctly determine a positive result in people who do have the disease. So sometimes it's called the true positive rate. If a test is highly sensitive, it's going to have few false negative results. So if your test comes back negative and it's highly sensitive, then you can believe it's negative. There's not a very good chance that this patient had a false negative. Okay? So a false negative result is when the test says it's negative but the individual actually does have the disease. Now, the risk with a false negative is the patient is not going to be getting appropriate treatment in a timely manner because the test came back and said, no, you don't have thyroid cancer. But guess what? They actually did. If you're like me, you really like easy ways to remember things. So I'm going to share a mnemonic with you. If you are sitting at your desk, you can jot this down. Try to visualize it if you're not in a place where you can write it down. And then I want you to go and look at the blog article associated with this episode so that you can see it written out in case it's a little bit hard for you to grasp while I'm explaining it. So the mnemonic is SNOUT, and that is spelled with two Ns S N N O U T. Okay, you got that? S N N O U T. And the S, And the second N are capitalized. So if you were to visualize it, it is capital S, lowercase n, capital N, lowercase O-U-T. Okay. And what this mnemonic means is when a highly sensitive test is negative, this helps rule out the disease. So here's how that lines up with the mnemonic. You had your capital S, lowercase n, that stands for highly sensitive test. And then the next part of the mnemonic is, is negative. So that's that capital N. And then that O-U-T stands for, this helps us rule out disease. So the mnemonic is snout. And the phrase is, when a highly sensitive test is negative, this helps us rule out the disease. Okay. And once you write it out, it makes a lot more sense. So an example of a high sensitivity test is the D-dimer test that is used to rule out the presence of a DVT. When used in patients with low or moderate probability for a blood clot, a negative D-dimer is not likely to be a false negative. In other words, we can believe the negative result because the test is very sensitive. A negative D-dimer likely means this individual does not have a blood clot. We can rule it out, okay? So that's sensitivity. Specificity refers to the test's ability to correctly identify a negative result. So you may hear it referred to as the true negative rate. Tests that are highly specific will have very few false positive results. In other words, if the test is positive, you can believe it. A false positive result is when the individual does not have the disease, but the test says they do. The risk here is the individual getting treatment they don't need. Here's a mnemonic for this one, and it's SPIN, S-P-P-I-N when a highly specific test is positive, this helps us diagnose or rule in the disease. So in for spin. So here's how it looks. It's a capital S lowercase p, and that stands for specific, and then a capital P and then lowercase i n. So when a highly specific test, that's that sp, is positive, there's your capital P, this helps us rule the disease in, and that's the in part, in spin. An example of a test with high specificity is the nitrate dipstick test that is used to identify a UTI. If the test is positive, the individual very likely has a UTI and antibiotics may be ordered. Okay, that one was tough. That was probably the toughest one of the bunch. I hope I didn't lose anybody. Let's move on to idiopathic versus iatrogenic. An idiopathic disease is one that does not have an identifiable cause. Examples are idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura or ITP. Now, iatrogenic, this refers to conditions that are a result of medical treatment, such as ventilator-acquired pneumonia or leukemia secondary to radiation or chemotherapy. So again, idiopathic is that disease that doesn't have an identifiable cause, and iatrogenic is going to be a condition that is a result of medical treatment. That perfect example is ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Now, sometimes, obviously, iatrogenic conditions are avoidable, and we try our best to avoid them. Okay, now let's talk about ischemia versus infarction versus necrosis. You're going to hear these a lot, especially when you're learning about stroke and you're learning about coronary artery disease and acute coronary syndrome and angina and myocardial infarction and all of that. So when we're looking at ischemia versus infarction versus necrosis, it's important to know that any tissue can be affected, though you're mostly going to hear them again in those conditions I just mentioned. Ischemia refers to tissue that has inadequate blood supply and, of course, therefore, inadequate oxygen supply. This is what's happening in angina pectoris. That pain that the patient feels is because that heart muscle is not getting enough blood flow, is not getting enough oxygen. That's ischemia. Infarction refers to an area of tissue that has no blood supply and the tissue has died as a result. The infarcted area is the area of dead tissue. So this is permanent, right? Ischemia, on the other hand, is transient. It can go away. It can be improved. But if ischemia is not improved, it can lead to infarction. And then necrosis, that's simply another term for dead tissue. Okay, so that's ischemia versus infarction versus necrosis. Okay, what about inflammation versus infection? So inflammation is a protective mechanism in the body that occurs in response to an injury. It can occur in response to an irritant, or it can occur because of an infection. The classic signs of inflammation are pain, reduced mobility, redness, swelling, and heat. Now, infection is the presence of an invading pathogen, such as a virus or a bacteria. Infection can cause inflammation, but inflammation doesn't cause infection. However, it's important to note that chronic inflammation can contribute to a wide range of chronic conditions, such as heart disease. So it's definitely not something to be taken lightly. Okay, here's one for you, urinalysis versus urine culture. You'll have both of these ordered on your patients, and you might be wondering, are they the same thing? When do I do one versus the other? A urinalysis is a general test that looks at the physical and chemical and even the microscopic characteristics of the urine. This includes the color, the clarity, even the odor. It can also include specific gravity and the pH. It can also detect the presence of multiple elements such as protein in the urine, white blood cells, red blood cells, casts, glucose, and leukocyte esterase. A urinalysis is often used as the first step in determining if the patient has a urinary tract infection. If certain elements are present, such as white blood cells or leukocyte esterase, this indicates UTI is likely and the urine is then cultured. So the urine culture, which typically is a culture and sensitivity, which you'll often see as a C and S. This looks at the specifics of the pathogen that is causing the UTI. With this test, we can learn what pathogens are causing the infection, and therefore, we can look at which antibiotics it's going to be susceptible to. Now, a urinalysis will result pretty quickly. A urine culture will take about 24 hours hours, at least, sometimes longer if you're really diving into different specificity tests. Okay, how about this one? And this one's another one that can be a little bit more challenging. So if you drifted away, come on back to me. Hypoxia versus hypoxemia. I bet you anything you've heard these terms used interchangeably and thought they meant the same thing. I'm raising my hand. For a long time, I did too. They actually mean two different things. Hypoxia refers to low oxygen level in the tissues, and that's measured via pulse oximetry. As you recall, a normal SpO2, which is the measure you're getting from pulse oximetry, is going to be above 90%. So hypoxia would be SpO2 below 90%. Now, hypoxemia is a low oxygen level in arterial blood, and it's measured via an arterial blood gas, and that's going to give you a value called the PaO2, and if it's below 80 millimeters of mercury, this is considered hypoxemia. Now, what gets a lot of people mixed up is they are different conditions, and they can occur together or they can occur independently. They don't always occur simultaneously. A patient can have hypoxemia without hypoxia if the body has had time and the ability to utilize compensatory mechanisms. Conversely, the patient can have hypoxia, which is that low level in the tissues, without hypoxemia, if the cells aren't able to utilize oxygen effectively. Now, this concept is slightly more advanced. So feel free to dive into more details about oxygenation in episode 89. I want you to go back and look at that. It's called oxygenation and related concepts. So if this went way over your head, you want to check out episode 89. Okay, now let's talk about arrhythmia versus dysrhythmia versus aberrancy. So you'll hear these a lot, especially as you start learning those more advanced cardiac topics. And if you are doing any clinical hours on a telemetry unit, you'll hear them a lot. So the good news here is that arrhythmia and dysrhythmia typically refer to the same thing. It means an abnormal or irregular heartbeat. Examples are atrial fibrillation, bradycardia, and ventricular tachycardia. Now, you may hear them used to mean arrhythmia is an abnormal rhythm that isn't harming the patient, and dysrhythmia is an abnormal rhythm that is harming the patient. But generally, the studies and all the research I did basically says they're more or less interchangeable terms. Now, aberrancy is something different. Aberrancy is an abnormality in the electrical conduction through the ventricles, and this results in a wider-than-normal QRS. Think of it as the electrical signal taking the side streets to get to the destination, instead of taking the freeway to its destination. It still gets where it's going. It just took a longer route because there's something going on with the conduction system. In many cases, because of the wide QRS, aberrancy can look like a ventricular rhythm. So careful identification is absolutely vital. Now live on all podcast platforms. Okay, now let's talk about crystalloid versus colloid. You'll hear this a lot when you are taking care of patients who are having fluid volume deficits, having hemodynamic instability, maybe a lot with sepsis, working in the ICU, those types of things. And it refers to the type of fluids the patient's receiving. Crystalloids refer to fluids that have small molecules, and crystalloids can provide immediate volume into that vascular space. Now, these fluids can easily shift into the interstitial space, especially when the vasculature is permeable, such as in sepsis. Examples of crystalloids are your 0.9% sodium chloride, your normal saline, and lactated ringers. Most of the time, we're using crystalloids. Colloids, on the other hand, have larger molecules. And because these molecules are large, they increase oncotic pressure to pull fluid into the vascular space. Some commonly used colloids are dextran, FFP, and albumin. There are others, but these are some of the most commonly used ones. Now, a typical scenario that you might see and at first be a little unsure about is if your patient has furosemide and a colloid ordered like albumin. That's the most common combo, furosemide and albumin. I want you to make sure that you read the administration orders very, very carefully. The MD most likely has ordered the albumin to be given first, and then after a certain amount of time, we will give the furosemide. So what's happening here is that by giving the albumin first, and you give it a little time to do its thing, it's going to pull excess fluid into the intravascular space, and then you follow that with the diuretic to help flush that excess fluid from the body via the urinary tract. So you'll see that combo a lot. That's the difference between crystalloids and colloids. Okay, how about with your chest tube? And you've got orders sometimes for suction, and sometimes you've got orders for water seal. What's the difference between suction and water seal? So a chest tube could be ordered either way. And I want you to know what this means. So suction means the chest tube drainage system is connected to that wall suction regulator, and that's going to provide continuous suction to the device. Note that the amount of suction that is applied is regulated at the device itself. A chest tube ordered to be set to water seal simply means that it's not attached to wall suction at all. Instead, the water in that chamber acts as a seal to prevent air from entering the pleural space when the patient inhales. Your orders will definitely specify how the MD wants that chest tube drainage system set up. And if there aren't orders about it, you want to make sure that you're calling and clarifying. Okay, one more from the this versus that category is rails versus crackles. You will hear these terms used interchangeably. And guess what? They actually are the same thing. In my program, we used the term crackles. And my husband, who's a paramedic firefighter, was always talking about rails. And I thought, wow, there's a long sound, but they're not teaching us in school. And then I got confused, thinking maybe rails was wrong guy, because they both started with an R. And then, you know, I had to go and clarify all of this for myself. So rails and crackles are the same thing. So rails and crackles are those lung sounds, that can be fine or they can be coarse. And the fine crackles are usually caused by atelectasis. Typically, the more coarse crackles are caused by things like aspiration. So there's something in the alveoli that shouldn't be there and pulmonary edema, which would be fluid in the alveoli that shouldn't be there. And then ronchi, on the other hand, are low-pitched breath sounds that are kind of like a snoring sound. So they're definitely completely different from rails and crackles. Okay, so now that we've got that cleared up, let's talk through some general medical terms that you might not yet know. When I was preparing to enter nursing school, I went full on turbo. Now, I'm a planner by nature, so I tackled nursing school as though I was embarking on an Arctic expedition. And to be honest, I spent a lot of time spinning my wheels. I wasn't sure how to prepare or what to do. I just felt that I should. After all, I'd heard how difficult a nursing school was, and I wanted to feel organized and ready from the very first day. I knew that's what would give me the confidence I needed to take on this challenge. So I did the best I could. I started school, and I have to say, I'm so glad I did that initial prep work. Now, was it the right prep work? Some of it was, and some of it wasn't. But what I did do right was so impactful. Because once school starts, it is game on. There's no time for review, there's no time to set up new systems, and many times, Concepts are coming at you at lightning fast speed. It would have been great to know a bit about these ahead of time, but I got through it. And now that I've been through nursing school and been mentoring students for quite a few years now, I know exactly what students can do to prepare. I know what they should review and the crucial concepts they should get introduced to before classes start, which is why I created Crucial Concepts Bootcamp a nursing school prep course that gets you ahead so you can start your program feeling confident and be way ahead of the game. Learn more about Crucial Concepts Bootcamp at learn.straightanursingstudent.com forward slash crucial dash concepts. I'd love to see you there. That's learn.straightanursingstudent.com forward slash crucial dash concepts. Start nursing school ready to conquer. Enroll in Crucial Concepts Bootcamp today. So now let's talk through some common medical language you're likely to hear in that clinical setting. When you have an understanding of what others are discussing, this can play a really big role in boosting your confidence and boosting your ability to put all those clinical pieces together when you're assessing your patient and anticipating what they're going to need. So the first medical term is refractory. What does this mean? When someone says the patient's condition is refractory, what they mean is it's not improving even though we're giving treatment. For example, refractive hypoxia means the SpO2 continues to be low even though we're giving the patient oxygen refractive hypotension means the patient remains hypotensive even after they got a fluid bolus or even when we're giving vasopressors. This is a term you'll hear used a lot when we discuss patients in septic shock. So if your patient has some kind of refractory condition, that usually means they're not doing very well and they're going to need more advanced, more aggressive treatment. The next term is residuals. If someone asks you about the patient's residuals, they're referring to the amount of tube feeding formula that is in their stomach. Yes, this does involve pulling back on the NG tube. So you're pulling that fluid, you're pulling that tube feeding out of the patient's stomach and actually measuring how much is there. If the residuals are above a certain amount, and that will depend on your facility's policy, this would indicate the patient has impaired or slowed gastric motility that warrants additional intervention. So, depending on your policy, You'll return the tube feeding if it's under a certain amount. And if it's over a certain amount, typically the tube feeding is held. You don't return the tube feeding. You pause whatever continuous feeding is happening. And then the patient likely gets a medication to improve gastric motility. And a very common one is metaclopramide, which we use the brand name Reglan a lot. The next term is whiteout. This term is used to describe an especially ominous chest x-ray, which shows a lot of white where you would expect and hope to see black. The white color is often cloud-like in appearance, but can appear opaque. It occurs in multiple conditions, such as pleural effusion and acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. Next, let's talk about the gap. When someone on the healthcare team refers to the gap, they're probably not talking about going shopping after their shift. They're referring to the anion gap, which is a diagnostic calculation that we use in diabetic ketoacidosis and some other acidosis states. When the gap is closed and other measurements are within normal range like pH bicarbonate and blood glucose then we consider the diabetic ketoacidosis to be resolved so if your patient is in the in the ICU for their diabetic ketoacidosis and you're sharing the blood glucose level with the MD, they're probably going to say, is the gap closed or what is the gap? And that's because that gap has to be closed before the DKA can be considered resolved. It's not just going to be because of their blood glucose. We want that acidosis state to be improved as well. The next term is titrate. This is a term used to describe either lowering or increasing based off the patient's response to that medication. This is most often done in the intensive care unit with medications such as norepinephrine, which is a medication that is titrated up or down to maintain the ordered blood pressure range, which would be typically a MAP, a mean arterial pressure, sometimes a systolic pressure. So we titrate the medication, increasing or decreasing in order to keep the blood pressure in that range. And how much you increase or decrease will be determined by your policy. So you're not just going to increase it by some arbitrary amount. It's going to say increase by 1 microgram per kilogram per minute every 5 minutes until this specific goal is obtained. Got it? Okay. Now let's talk through some medical slang. Nurses and other healthcare workers use a lot of medical slang. So some common ones you'll hear in the clinical setting are discussed here. A rainbow. What the heck is a rainbow? If somebody tells you, can you get a rainbow on Bob in Basics? You might think, what in the world? So a rainbow refers to a a set of blood samples. We're doing some blood draws. And the blood draws we are doing is going to require us to use a range of tube colors. Those vials or those little tubes have different colors, depending on the type of test it is. So typically, this means you're drawing a vial for a CBC, which is one color, a vial for coagulation studies, which is another color, And then another vial for chemistries, which you guessed it, is another color. So if somebody says, I need a rainbow on Bob in base six, you'll know to get those three or so different colored tubings and draw all of those different samples. A blunt is something that you will hear referred to a lot. And usually this is referring to a needle that is actually very blunt, doesn't have a point, but it's sharp enough that you can use it to draw up medication into a syringe. And then if you are going to be administering that medication, You know, intramuscularly, you would change it out for an actual needle. A lot of times you're using that syringe to administer something as an IV push. So you would use a blunt to draw it up. And then sometimes we use the blunts to cap off the ends of our IV lines if there's nothing else available for that. Now, an end cap is an actual sterile cap that is intended to be used to cover a disconnected IV line. It is also sometimes used to refer to the needleless connector that is attached to your peripheral IV. The context will be determined by how it is being used and should help you understand which type of end cap is being discussed. Now, a dead ender is a type of end cap that does not have any kind of an opening in it. So it's commonly seen when you first set up your arterial line pressure monitoring system. The cap that is in place on the system when you pull it out of the package has a tiny little opening in it. Once you've flushed the entire line with your saline, you want to replace that with a dead ender, with a dead end cap that truly closes off the system. So that's a dead ender. And then a Christmas tree is the little adapter piece that connects to your oxygen valve at the wall. So it goes on the oxygen valve device at the wall, and then your nasal cannula tubing connects into that. And the reason it's called a Christmas tree is because of its shape. It's shaped like a little Christmas tree, and it is also often green. Not always, but often it is green. The real name for the device is a nut and nipple adapter. You may hear it called that. I've never heard anybody at the bedside call it that. It's always a Christmas tree or just an adapter. A Purewick is a really handy external urinary collection device that's really becoming more common in its use. But in case you've never heard of it, it is external urinary collection device used for women. And the short version of it is that it's a way to minimize skin breakdown and the use of indwelling catheters all at once. So if the patient is incontinent or maybe they just had their hip done and they can't be rolled side to side for, you know, a certain period of time because of that hip surgery, the MD may want them to have a pure wick. Now in the old days, We may have just put in a Foley catheter. Well, there's a high risk for urinary tract infection anytime we use an indwelling catheter. And then incontinent patients, even though we have the moisture wicking pads underneath, if we can do more to keep that moisture off their skin, that's going to be even better. So the Purewick helps meet those goals. So it kind of looks like a blue hot dog on a stick, to be honest. And I will put a link in the episode notes so that you can go to the website and see it and see how it works. It's a little bit difficult to describe without you actually seeing it for yourself. So I'll put the link to that in the episode notes. Now, a chucks pad, you may hear chucks referred to. This is an absorbent pad that is utilized to wick moisture away from patients who are incontinent, and it also helps keep your linens nice and clean. So the word chucks referred to an older brand that's no longer being used, but it came from the fact that you could just chuck it, just throw it in the trash when it was soiled. So the name definitely stuck around. You may hear the term snowing, as in snowing the patient. So this refers to kind of an outdated practice, but it could still be done, of giving the patient enough medication to render them unconscious. We definitely try to avoid this as much as we can because of the detrimental effects of polypharmacy, immobility, and just the medications themselves. In the olden days, this was done a lot with ventilated patients, and the effects of that proved to be very, very detrimental. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, I do have a bonus episode with Kaylee Dayton, and it is an absolutely awesome episode talking about the dangers of immobility, the dangers of snowing patients, and a real push and a real shift away from that to even having patients awake and even walking while they're on mechanical ventilators. I will put a link to that in the episode notes for you. And then the last slang term that you might hear and not know what it means is going on a road trip. So if one of the nurses you're working with says they're going on a road trip, there is a chance they're packing their car for a much needed getaway, but probably a much bigger chance that they're taking their critically ill patient to some kind of procedure or test such as CT scan or MRI. So there you have it. Some common medical terms, some phrases, some slang that often leave students and new nurses feeling a little bit lost. I hope that now you'll feel like you can be a part of the conversations when these terms come up and know that you can always ask, especially if you are in the moment and the information is needed for you to continue with safe, effective patient care. So I'll see you again very soon. Our next episode is going to be looking at respiratory assessment. So we did a very deep dive into neuroassessment a couple of weeks back. We're going to be talking about respiratory assessment next. So I'll see you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.